Welcome to the Adventures in Arting podcast. This is episode number 63, Julie Loves to Learn, recorded on February 14th, 2017. My name is Julie Fafan Balzer, and with me is my co-host, Eileen Schubalzer. Hi, Mom. Hello, Julie. How happy Hi. Valentine's Day. Well, thank you. I think this we had a discussion. This Valentine's Day for us. I think we had a discussion yesterday about our happiest Valentine's Day memories. And if I recall, just sharing yes, that it was when I was in third grade. I've decided it's third grade and I was voted the Valentine mailman and I got to deliver the Valentines to everybody's desks. And I was thinking last night, why is that my happiest Valentine's memory? I and believe I think- at the time I said to you, the reason was because you're a control freak and you like being in charge. And the idea of being in charge of giving people their Valentines was deeply satisfying. That's no. probably a good, as good an explanation <laughs> as any. No, what was the reason you came no, up no, with? No, 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 no. I, no, I was just trying to figure it out. I, part of it is being in charge, and mm-hmm. part of it is like bringing people happiness when you show up with that Valentine and put it on their desk. Yeah, it's true. Well, the thing is, I will say this: you are an excellent gift giver, and partially, I think that's because giving gifts is about. Uh, thinking about what somebody else would like and not necessarily in the five minutes before you have to actually bring them a gift, but like long beforehand and like really knowing people. I still remember a magic trick you did with Matthew, my brother. Um, Many years ago, he got a pair of shorts for Christmas from you. A very ugly pair of shorts, by the way, may I add? But anyway, he was a kid, maybe middle school. And he had said to you, I saw this really cool pair of shorts at Olympia Sports in the mall. That's all he had said to you, and it had, sh- and the exact pair of shorts that he had wanted showed up under the tree. And I remember thinking that that was amazing. But it just that's about knowing people to give them a really good gift. And I think like part of you know, I mean like a, I think you're interested in people, but b, I think your interest in giving people good gifts is also causes you to be like aware of them and the kinds of stuff that they would like and actually delivering the valentines while it's not like knowing people in the same way but it brings that same kind of pleasure to people but by the way you know they don't I think I don't have children so I don't actually know but I've heard that they don't let you give valentines in school anymore because people's feelings get hurt right because you either have to give to everybody or nobody Right. Well, in complete opposition to your story, I remember a Valentine's Day when I was in school when you're still allowed to hurt people. Uh, When I was so excited because I received this series of anonymous notes from a secret admirer on Valentine's Day um, in my desk who told me how in love they were with me and how like they admired me from far. And I was so excited. And then I found out later that was a bunch of my quote unquote friends uh, in school, some girls just being mean and uh, jerking me around. So there you go, delivering a different kind of happiness. To somebody else. Yeah, exactly. Well, I was happy in the moment when I thought I had a secret admirer. That was nice. Well, I am your not-so-secret admirer. Aw, Julie and Mom forever. Uh, so I titled this episode, Julie Loves to Learn, uh, because not about learning lessons in life, which I have, but also just about learning <laughs> in general, because there's been a lot of learning for me in the last uh, two weeks, I guess, since our last podcast, right? Yes. Yeah, so let's start with uh, 
the dinner at the MFA Museum of Fine Arts. Okay, so I this uh, I went to it was a curatorial dinner. And so what it was, was we went, you signed up ahead of time. They gave you a long list of different tours you could go on. And so it's a big group of people, like 125 people, I think, ended up were there. But the various tours were breakout groups of, I would say, 12 to 20 people, let's say. And so you signed up ahead of time for the tours you wanted to go into and you ranked them in order of like, you know, one through eight or however many tours there were. And then when you showed up at the Museum of Fine Arts, you got a little envelope that had the uh, names of the tours that you were going on in what order and then also your table that you were going to sit at for dinner. Now, the descriptions of the tours were super like vague and part of that is because I think they plan the event way ahead of time and they don't actually know which curators are going to be available to do the tours until just before um, so for example the second tour I went on was actually titled like textile fashion something or other and I thought we were going to be seeing some kind of obviously textile thing and it ended up being jewelry which is still within the fashion heading, I, I assume because that's the curator who was available, you know. Um, but the best, most exciting thing about it is the first curatorial tour. And by the way, when I keep saying curatorial tour, curator, like all this stuff, let's just define some terms here. So obviously, uh, museum curators are people who the museum has hired to basically design exhibits, purchase art, uh, build catalogs. They're basically the experts in their areas. So the benefit of having a curator give you a tour is not only are they the expert, like I went on a curatorial tour recently, maybe a month ago, about Impressionism. Not only was that curator able to tell you an immense amount about the paintings and the painters and the period and all that stuff, but they literally can tell you things like, this exhibit was set up this way because of that. When I, you know, painted the gallery, I decided I wanted it to be brown because X. And so it's a different level of information um, about the topic, the subject, whatever it is you're looking at. I mean, the jewelry curator was telling us about the kind of stuff that she had been buying for the collection and uh, how hard she had fought, you know, to get certain things and how they had had to talk to the museum trustees to make them understand that collecting jewelry that's um, the kind of stuff you would see like the royal family wearing, like diamonds and tiaras and stuff like that was as worthwhile as more sort of like art jewelry um, or ancient jewelry out of like Africa and Mesopotamia and stuff like that. Um, so again, so curators just give you a deeper knowledge and that's the great benefit. The thing is to, um, in modern times, curators have also become fundraisers sort of by accident because people want to hear from curators and so they become an interface for museum patrons um, and a perk that you get for donating to the museum is often a curatorial tour or the chance to talk to a curator. Most of the time when you go to a tour in a gallery, you're with a docent who is also very knowledgeable. You're with, you know, somebody else. But to get access to the curator is always exciting. Anyway, so um, the first curatorial tour that I went on was all about miniatures. It was called like Small Wonders or Small Pleasures or something like that. It's vaguely dirty. Uh, but so what it was, was it was, um, 
the curator brought us into a room and we sat down at this big table and he showed us a brief PowerPoint and then the most amazing thing happened. He passed around all these miniature snuff boxes and dance cards and things, I mean, from the 1800s and like so beautiful, so gorgeous, like me out of gold and rubies and diamonds. And like somebody actually said, what's the value of each of these pieces that we're let me say it again, touching without gloves and holding and opening. I couldn't believe he actually let us open things because the snuff boxes were so tight that when you open them, you had to like exert effort. And at one point I thought I might break this dance card and they like, and it was amazing. And so the answer to the value question, not that it matters, but he was like, each piece here is probably worth between 20000 and and $100,000. And I was like, you can't see my face, but I was like, OMG, I can't even believe. So I like I held a $100,000 Fabergé snuff box in my hand and I didn't steal it. I'm just <laughs> saying. I'm just saying. Anyway, so it was kind of cool to be because, you know, museums really you can't touch things. And so it was super exciting to be able to touch everything and to feel it. And also like the weight of the items was really different. And he did talk a little bit about museumification of stuff and how things become museumified because, of course, you can't touch them. And things that are this small that are hand sized, how would you ever Dis, you know, like display them so that people could really see them. You'd have to have people's noses pressed against the glass. And like, you know, he was also saying, and it's true, these are these are objects that are interesting on the inside and on the underside and on the top and on the, you know, so in order to, it's impossible to do that in a museum. So this was wonderful. So somebody said, why are you letting us touch this? <laughs> <laughs> um, and he said basically that everything there was gold. So unlike silver stuff, it's not going to tarnish by touch. With To clean gold, all you have to do is just take a damp cloth you know, and wipe it off. But basically, he thought it would be kind of fun. He was a little nervous about it, he said. But he thought it would be okay. And, and everybody was really careful and respectful is the other thing. But then, of course, I went to the jewelry tour, and they didn't let us touch anything. And it was horrible <laughs> because after that experience, you were like, but I want to touch it. I want to try it on. I want to try it on. I, I would look good in a tiara. Um, so again, like some of the interesting things that I was thinking about is they talked a lot about how jewelry doesn't have provenance. So for instance, Tiffany's, Tiffany jewelry, you know, has been being made forever. It feels like, um, they don't like you to know that they don't make all their jewelry. There are makers of all kinds who make their jewelry, but most of their jewelry is only stamped with Tiffany's and it's a great secret as to who actually made it. So part of what the jewelry curator does is like research and try to find who the who's the actual artisan who made that. And a lot of times they designed it, they made it, and if they worked for multiple jewelers, you'll sometimes find that there does that you see these similar designs across different like Cartier, Tiffany, whatever, and you're trying to figure out why they look so similar and it's because it's the same original maker. So there's some interesting stories to find. And also they were saying like unlike a painting where you can see the signature like obviously most of the time across the front of the painting. Um, jewelry, when it's stamped, is often stamped in a very small, tiny place. And like they were saying, they showed us this one necklace that it had taken them five days after they purchased it. They were sure it was Tiffany, but they couldn't find a stamp, but they were sure, but they had to buy it at auction. So they just bought it on faith. And then it took them five days of like taking it apart and poking around to finally find the Tiffany stamp you know, under something back, tiny, miniature, because it's jewelry. 
So I thought that was interesting just in terms of like artists and credit and this great question about a, a lot of times people say like, you know, they talk about craft as a four letter word um, versus art, which is, you know, the godliness of art. Um, and part of that is people, I think, I mean, this is obviously my opinion, but I think that there is some stuff about like, when does craft turn into art? So are these people who made these necklaces, is that craft? I mean, it's fine art craft in some ways, or it's fine, whatever you want to call it, or are they artists if, only if they were original pieces are they artists or if they're, you know, if they're putting out 20 or 200 of them, are they craftspeople who are just really good at what they do? I mean, I don't think it really matters semantically, but it is an interesting question because I think a lot of craftspeople don't take credit for their work, whereas I think artists are very good about taking credit for what they do. And, you know, maybe a lot of people sometimes will say the difference between art and craft is intentionality. Like, I am an artist and I'm intending this to be art. I'm a craft person and I'm intending this to be craft, you know, and that maybe that's the difference and not signing it as an indication somehow that you weren't intending it to be art. I don't know. I, I just think there's some interesting stuff in there to think about. So after the curatorial tours, where, by the way, you can talk and ask, oh, oh, I almost forgot. My number one best moment of the whole day, and I have to brag about this really hard, really loud, so turn up the volume, because this is the greatest moment of my life, and it will never be repeated. I was looking at a small snuff box, and because I was able to hold it in my hand, I said to the curator, how were these images put onto the box? And he said, oh, it was just painted on. And I said, I don't think so. Because I can see here where part of the leaf has worn away that it looks like there's a small indent. And he said, what? And he came over and he put on his bifocals and he looked at it and he goes, oh my gosh. He says, I think you're right. I think you're right. I think this was somehow incised. He said, then I'll have to look into how, you know, it was clearly then not painted on here. It was pressed. And I was like, I just told the curator something about an object in his collection that he didn't know. This is the greatest moment of my entire life. Everybody pay attention to what just happened. And then, of course, I was sad because nobody was paying attention to what I just did. But I know it, and now you know it too, and it was great. Anyway, so. <laughs> Let's not oversell the moment. It was an amazing moment. Yay for observation. Anyway, so then after I, uh, after the two tours, then we went into dinner. And so each table at dinner had a curator at the table as like the special star of the table. And we, uh, I was lucky enough to be sitting just one person away from the curator. So ended up having a very long talk. And our curator was a curator of musical instruments at the museum, which if I may be completely frank is a room I never go in and am often <laughs> bored by. Um, but but now you'll want to go all the time. Yeah, and so it was it was uh, really enlightening to talk to him. He was a very uh, tongue in cheek, sarcastic, like gregarious guy, very down to earth. Um, some of the curators I think can be described as hoity-toity, not necessarily because I think they're putting on airs or anything, but just because they tend to be sort of academic types, which can be somewhat off-putting to some people. And he was a very, like, earthy kind of guy. And he talked about, I think he grew up in, this is going to be terrible, like Montana, North Dakota, somewhere like very not a lot of people. And I was like, well, how did you 
you know, stumble into this. And it was basically like so many things, like a whole series of accidents. He never had any interest in being a museum curator. He liked music. He found a harpsichord at some point when he was like 17, you know, stumbled into something. It was a series of accidents. There was an opening at the museum accidentally right at the time that he was looking for a job. He came and that was, you know, 30 odd years ago. And so when people say like, how do I become you? He says to them, I literally have no idea. And he says, I'm not being a jerk, but it's like there happened to be this opening. I dumbed into it. I stumbled into it. I never intended to do this. I'm still stuck back at he found a harpsichord. I know. That's what I said. (laughs) I was like, how did that happen? So apparently the university that was near his home actually had a very good musical program. And there was a harpsichord there. Yeah. So so it was – it was fun to talk to him because he also has a lot of feelings because musical instruments are meant to be used of mm-hmm. not liking the museumification of them because, you know, he says he has fights sometimes with the museum about he wants to do something where he's using the instruments to do something. And there's a ton of red tape about, well, the facilities team has to come to get the instruments to take them out and then they have to be checked and then da 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 And he's just like, come on, you know, open the case, give it to me. We'll play it for five minutes and put it back. But it doesn't work like that, apparently. This is an ongoing kind of argument, I think, about a lot of things that are in museums. Um I know in ethnographic museums, a lot of times the objects that they collect were meant to be used in a ceremony, used in a dance, whatever. And so seeing them in motion is part of appreciating why they're designed the way they are. Yeah, and I think about it about there's a lot of interactive art, um, artists who meant things to like move and swing and for you to touch and rearrange. And of course, because they're afraid of the art getting ruined, that, that, that changes it. Or I think we've talked before about how so much uh, contemporary art is made from stuff that's meant to be like casual and disposable, but then it becomes precious because obviously we move away from those things that are casual and disposable. You know, they no longer Remember? exist anymore. Remember that story you told me about there was an art exhibit, was it at the Museum of Modern Art, and it involved all these pieces of candy? Yeah, that candy, which is no longer made and impossible to find. So museums are hysterically searching eBay constantly when it was really just meant to be casual, everyday candy you could find anywhere. And the whole notion of this exhibit, or of this piece of art, I should say, is that you are taking candy from a gay man with AIDS in the 1980s when people were scared of it but now they don't make that candy so every time they exhibit it and people keep taking the candy they have to hysterically find it you know somewhere else interesting okay it's not so interesting back to mom the... we can't say interesting anymore that's why you have to it's fascinating fascinating titillating um titillating. back to the <laughs> dinner Okay, so the dinner. So talking to him and then talking to other people and, you know, one of the things is the group that this was with is is young people who are interested. So under 45, um, people who are interested in art and interested in patronizing the museum and everyone who's there has actually paid a lot of money to the museum to belong to this level of membership. And so one of the things I find uh, fascinating or compelling to ask people always is... Why are you a supporter of the museum? You know, how what what interests you about it? And, um, and people have very, very different stories. I 
thus far, I'm the only person I've run into who actually practices the act of making art. Most people are people who uh, appreciate art. Several I've run into several art history majors. I've run into people who are art dealers. There are some curators who are actually members, young curators. Um, I've run into a lot of people who are collectors or hoping to be collectors. Um, but everybody's there for different reasons. And I, it actually, to me, is not unlike when you go to an art class. And there are people there who are professionals, and there are people there who are art teachers, and there are people there who are uh, hobbyists, and there's people there who are like, I had nothing to do today. And there are people there, you know, for all kinds of reasons. I think that art, whether you're making it or consuming it, you know, visually or intellectually, it is a wonderful outlet for so many people in so many different ways. Okay, so you had a dinner. It was served in one of the galleries. Yes, it was served in the Coke Gallery. So that's another fancy thing is you're eating food in this beautiful gallery full of all this art and paintings. And I just kept thinking, let's have a food fight. It was like being at the fanciest <laughs> wedding I've ever been to in my whole life, you know, because it's all little tables and those little gold chairs and beautiful, you know, table service. And they're bringing you everything. You've got 25 glasses and, you know, three you know, three forks and four knives and da 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 the whole thing. So it was really nice. It was a it it was, I think, the quintessential definition of a lovely evening. Um nice it's it's fun to be with strangers who you have something in common with and can get to know. Well, that does happen at weddings, for example. Yeah. That is one of the things about weddings is that you talk to people and you have a, already a conversational starting point. Agreed. Agreed. And and the thing is, I actually, for all my gregariousness, am somewhat shy when it comes to social situations. And I don't really like to push myself onto people. So even when I know people, if I go to these events, I always feel a little bit shy or awkward about being like, hi, I'm going to stand here and talk to you and make you talk to me for the next, you know, half hour. So I always sort of excuse myself or walk out of conversations, usually after just a couple minutes, because I feel... I don't know. I feel awkward about it. Um, but so one of the nice things about having an assigned table is I didn't feel like I had to walk up to a bunch of strangers and be like, hey, I'm forcing myself to sit here. Instead, it was like, hey, we're all forced to sit together. Well, let's have a conversation, which was really nice for someone who can be somewhat socially awkward like me. Thanks for sharing. I feel like sharing. Sharing is caring, Mom. It is Valentine's Day. So let's talk about your marbleizing weekend. So I have wanted to do paper marbling for a hundred million years and I have books and I've watched videos and I've thought about it, but I've always been a little like, I, you know, I need an in-person class to give me the push. I think learning takes uh, many different forms. Some people are great at reading something and doing it. Other people are great at hearing about it and doing it. I actually am an experiential learner and I know this about myself. I do best when I do it hands-on. So for instance, when I was in high school, I did not understand almost anything in biology class, even though I was reading everything and there for every class and all that stuff. But when we would make models, like make a model of a cell, as soon as I had made it, then I was like, oh, I get it. I know all the parts. I know how they relate and I can ace that test. So I am a person 
And maybe that's why I'm an artist and work with my hands. I need that experiential portion of it. So when I, by taking a class for me in person, that's a great way. Or when I read something or watch a video, I can't just walk away and then know it. I have to then do it. It's one of the reasons I tell people all the time when they have scanning cut questions is I say, you can't watch the video and then go to your machine. You have to watch the video at your machine and keep pressing pause and doing it with it. Because for me, I know that's the way that I learn. It's completely experiential. I have to press it, play it, touch it, wrap it, crank it, you know, poke it, do it, make it not work, and then figure it out exactly how it does work, you know? Um, so when I say to you, don't, don't eat that, it's still hot. You yes. have to put it in your mouth and burn your tongue before you absorb that message. You, you may have noticed that over the years, actually, as a, as a truth. Um, so taking an in-person class was a goal of mine. So there's this, there's this wonderful school in Jamaica Plain around here called, I'm now literally forgetting the name of it. Thanks uh, for preparing for I the know, podcast. I know. I did prepare for the podcast. I just have early onset Alzheimer's. Uh, anyway, I can't remember what it's called, but they offer all sorts of exciting classes include, and most of their classes are very small, but it's impossible. The Elliott school, the Elliott school, um, the Elliott school. And, but they're, it's really hard to get into the classes. They sell out like one second after they, they're announced. And I have never been able to get into one of them. So I looked up the teacher of the paper marbling class that I saw there and I discovered a wonderful thing. She t teaches private classes in her home. And it was not that expensive. So it was, I think, like $120 a person. She gives you all the supplies and gives you breakfast and lunch for an yeah. all-day class. It blew my mind. I was like, what? How is this humanly possible? So a friend of mine happened to be coming into town, and I pretty much said to her, I was like, hey, you're coming to town. Do you want to take this class? She's like, um, I've never taken an art class before. I don't think I'm at the right level for this. Is this a good idea? I was like, great. I signed us up. That's <laughs> pretty much how that conversation went. Cause I was like, I'm not missing this opportunity to do this. And in the end, she was so nervous to the, my friend Bethany, who actually has been a guest on the podcast, by the way, but she was so nervous to the point that she asked me like, what should she wear to class? And like, would she be okay? And which, and I was like, it will be a hundred percent fine. And, and it actually made me really conscious that people are actually nervous about taking an art class and that maybe that's a new experience for some people. Will I fit in? Will it be okay? Will people look at me and laugh? Will I know what I'm doing? Will I be able to follow along? Will I be the worst one? Like whatever those thoughts are. So that was good. It was good to hear actually, all that. Actually, you know, in a class that small, your chances of being the worst one are very high. That's what I said. I was like, don't worry, I'll be the worst one. <laughs> um, so there were, so there, she takes four students at a time. One of the students was sick. So there were actually only three of us. Um, I have never been in a class that small, I think maybe, maybe one time before ever, but it was amazing to be able to do that. And, um, so the class was fan freaking tastic. She took us through all the basics of what you need to do and then pretty much let us play, offering some suggestions and some help. And of course, I think there's stuff like I know my color theory and I know my other stuff like that from other art things. So I was able to not have to think too hard about what colors are going to go with this and how should I, you know, match this up. I also spent a lot of time 
uh, experimenting with the question, what if? Because even though she would tell us how to do it properly, I kind of wanted to find out what would happen if I didn't do it properly because better to find out with her supplies <laughs> in her <laughs> studio. And with and the real point is with a teacher there to help you if you have any problems, you know? I say this to people all the time when they're in class. I say, don't try to do it right. Try to do it the way that it feels good and remember that I'm here and this is the moment to have a terrible problem. This is the moment because I'm here to help you fix it. You know, I won't be there with you when you go home. So I had such a good time making papers and I immediately came home and looked at like, what do I need to order? <laughs> what do I need to buy to make this happen? Because the it was really fun to do. It was very satisfying. It was not hard. It's something, but there is a lot of prep involved. So for instance, the solution that you float the paints in needs to be made 24 hours ahead of time, you know, and, or it has to be made at least 24 hours ahead of time, but it is actually made from a food product. So it will mold and stuff. You have to, so you, then you have to use it within like 72 hours, even if you keep it in the fridge, you know? So there's, there's some timing issues about it. And one of the things, for instance, our teacher said when we left is she said, cause we, we had four basins for printing. Right. And she said, we, she said, I will print each of these basins until they're no good anymore. Because obviously, if you take the time and energy to make them, you're going to use them. So that was something I was conscious of is there's that. It also requires a lot of water and a lot of water cleanup. So at the end of it, you will have – because you have to wash all of the paper down after you print it. And so that either requires a big slop sink where you're running water or it requires you to dump water over it, you know, into a trash can. And then you have to dispose of the water in the trash can or the bucket – you know, it takes up a lot of drying space. I mean, it is not a, hey, I think I'll do this today for an hour kind of thing. It's a, hey, I think I'm going to do this in two days and spend the whole day doing it kind of thing. That said, it is the perfect thing if you wanted to have some girlfriends over and have a whole day of art making. It's the perfect thing if you wanted to completely lock yourself away and tell everybody to leave you alone because I'm telling you my neck hurt so much like five minutes after getting into the car and I was like I didn't even notice the whole time that I was standing and obviously hunched over in some weird position because I was having so much fun and I was so engaged it also opened up my brain because it's a different way about thinking about design it's a different way about thinking about color because the colors don't mix they stay separate so it's color relationship not color mixing um, there's all sorts of stuff about the paper you print on and whether you use this thing called negative, which makes empty spaces. So if you have a paper behind that's colored or patterned, you can show it through. There's overprinting. There's, I mean, it's fascinating. There's using dirty water so that you have some of the last, it's like using a dirty jelly print so that you are jelly plate so that you have some of what was from last time. I mean, there's a whole complicated, wonderful series of things and, um, I'm excited. I, I will definitely buy the supplies and do it again. Um, I think it was just so fun. It was everything I wanted it to be. And I really got excited by the possibilities that it offered. Now, of course, I'm afraid to use any of the beautiful marble paper that I made because it's so gorgeous. But I think I need to get over it and just <laughs> go. 
can we expect a blog post about the well actually by the time so i we're we're taping this podcast on a tuesday i already wrote the blog post for it which goes up tomorrow which is wednesday and this podcast doesn't go up until thursday so it will have already gone up what will essentially be yesterday if you're listening to it on thursday okay i will um winslow homer yeah, so last podcast, that evening, we were planning on going to the Winslow Homer lecture about a summer night, um, which is a painting by Winslow Homer. Uh, and first of all, it was a free and open to the public lecture. And we got there maybe 15 minutes before the lecture and could not find three seats together. We almost didn't find seats at all. I had to fight New York style aggressively to get a seat. But I found you're it. so good at it. I did. I found I found you a seat. I found our other friend a seat. I found me a seat. But it was I fought some old ladies for that stuff, man. Anyway, it was good times. But well, you uh, actually fought. Uh, uh, I the, fought the law and the law one. Yeah, for your seat in the front. It's true. I ended up sitting in the second row. It was pretty amazing. Oh, you know what I didn't tell you is at the Winslow Homer lecture there was a guy in the first row who must have been a fancy dignitary guy. Um, and he had a sketchbook, and he was drawing the painting, uh, oh. like his version of it, just using like Copic markers and stuff. It was it was fun to look over and see. I was slightly too far to really see what he was doing, but I got the basic gist of it. I wished I had been behind him to really peek at it. Um, so the lecture was these three different curators. There's that word again, talking about their. Uh, theories on Winslow Homer's Summer Night. It is an atypical painting for him, which is why I think it is interesting for people to talk about. Most of Winslow Homer's work, if you are not familiar with it, they are sea-related, uh, as in ocean-related um, paintings, and they almost always involve danger and are on the water, and it's the ocean as a terrible beast that's about to kill you kind of stuff this in contrast is a relatively calm ocean with a group of ladies in shadow at the edge of the water and two young girls dancing in an embrace uh, lit from the front so there was a lot of talk about lighting and some issues of uh, there's a curator there from France who talked a bit about uh the lighting of it and how complicated it was to have uh, lighting from an unseen interior, lighting from the moon above in the background. There's a lighthouse in there. There was a curator who talked about the motion of the ocean as it related to the motion of the dancers as, you know, um, there was a lot of talk about foreground, midground, background. There was some talk about story. And then there was some Q&A, which was a surprisingly better than usual Q&A. Often at the Harvard Art Museums, not to be a jerk, but maybe I am. I find that most of the questions are actually people raising their hands to be like, I'm smart. Here's what I think. P.S. Question mark. Uh, so not really <laughs> a question. Um, but this was actually some real questions, which I really appreciated. And after we heard the lecture and the Q&A conversation between the curators, we got to go up to the gallery and see the actual painting, which of course is much smaller than you would think it would be because you were looking at it on a huge screen in this auditorium, the whole lecture. Um, and 
there are also a million people in the gallery because everybody had just come from the lecture. So it was a little bit like viewing the Mona Lisa where you're sort of jostling to get a glimpse of it. Um, as always, it the thing I like about talks and lectures and that kind of learning is that this is a painting I would not have looked at twice. If I pass it in a gallery, I would have glazed over it. It is not, to me, and again, art is completely subjective, to me, it is not particularly exciting. It is not particularly, I hate this word, interesting, intriguing. It is not particularly titillating. I, the colors, I've never been an ocean motif person. It doesn't have a lot of movement for me. I would have sort of been like, okay, pretty painting, keep moving. Uh, so to have spent two hours of my life focused on a painting that doesn't interest me was a wonderful experience because I appreciate that painting now and it has given me a lot to think about and it has made me think that probably every painting, even the boring ones, has a long story and many possible interpretations. And again, that question about what is it that makes art interesting? What is it that makes art fascinating and durable and all that other stuff is the fact that it is visually exciting. It can be emotionally uh, disturbing, exciting, disruptive. It is intellectually stimulating. It, I mean, that it just covers so many of those things. And I think that the art, in my opinion, that endures over time and uh, is the art that pings off those three towers. That is... Uh, that has some emotional content, that has some uh, visual, uh, whatever it is, je ne sais quoi, and that has some intellectual content. And I think if I were a collector, uh, that is the stuff that I would look for. And I know that as an artist, that's always the triangle that I know I'm striving for, which is to hit all those three points. One of the takeaways I got from this evening was they had one of the curators who really talked about photography and that at the time this was painted there was an element an important element of the advent of photography and uh which then means light and one of the other curators then talked about fact that we think of technological advances like okay the computer has come in how is this influencing art and what we kind of look past is that artificial lighting was a huge technological advance which changed people's lives enormously and that in this a summer night painting with these two different sources of light one is artificial one is the moon there it was actually a kind of intellectual play study of those kinds of light and how you show them and what they mean and the actual meaning of the painting might even be uh, ex extrapolated to be something about the natural versus the artificial. It was just really interesting and I'm going to go back and look at some other artwork that was created around the same time where artificial light became more widespread and think about that that 
it really changes your entire biorhythms. It changes what kinds of activities you do when and what setting to have artificial light. So I got a lot from that lecture that I'll be chewing over. Also, they talked about, you know, night painting became a thing partially because the only way you can actually paint a night scene is with artificial light. You know, you can't actually paint a night scene. Um, And I thought that was a good point. I also thought that the the whole photography thing, you know, they showed some Winslow Homer photos that he had taken. And you can see that how when artists could take photos and freeze a moment, freeze the ocean, freeze whatever it is, then they could paint it in a different way than when everything had to be live and in the moment. So we both got a lot out of that evening. Yeah, it was a good one. And we got seats. What's up? Thanks to you. (laughs) Uh, Why don't you talk about uh, you uh, did two things with quilts. So I took a quilting class this week um, with a woman named Tim Natar, which was a lot of fun, improvisational piecing. And it was right up my alley because the first thing she said is no rulers for the first half of class and of course there were groans and people who were desperately unhappy and I thought no rulers this is the best class ever at some point in class I actually said out loud I said this is the best this is the class just lets me do whatever I want and be you know as bad as I want but permission to do it and she and and I thought it was kind of funny because I think sometimes that's what people have actually said to me also when I teach is this is like permission to do what you want and not think that there's a right way. So I loved that I had this opportunity to play with fabric and not feel like seams had to be precise and that it was okay when things curved. And it was, it was, uh, I enjoyed hearing other quilters around me talk about how, oh no, my seam is curved. Oh no, nothing straight. And of course, when that happened to me, I was just like, let's iron it. As, long, as soon as you steam iron it, it'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know. So ironing could be the gesso. There you go. Uh, ironing is the paint splatters of my life in quilting. I uh, just, you know, you know but, but it's true because even if you have a weird wonky seam, as long as you just steam iron it, then it's fine and you kind of keep moving. Yeah. Um, But so we made something that I'm not entirely sure that I love. Uh, In fact, I'm not even sure that I like it. But I... I felt that way about my children sometimes. (laughs) Only one of them, Matthew. Uh, But I certainly uh, had a great time. Felt myself opening up to some new ideas. Um, Felt myself challenged as a student. Sewing is not in my wheelhouse. Enjoyed the social aspects of talking to other sewers and quilters and people who like making things um I just had a really good time and I don't get a chance to sew very often so oftentimes I find when people come to my classes what they say is they're not they don't really care what they learn they just want to be able to spend the day making things And I know that when I go to class, I'm only interested in learning because I do spend so much of my time making things. The actual like free time to make stuff is not that exciting to me. And some of the workshops I've hated the most are the ones where the teacher will give you 15 minutes of instruction 
up front and then leave you to paint all day and I want to punch them in the face and be like give me my money back what a waste of my freaking time you know I would like some content please um, where I know other people have loved that because they don't have the time you know to paint at home and in contrast this quilt class was she gave about 15 minutes of instruction up front then let us sew and then another five to ten minutes in the middle and then let us sew um, but I loved it because I don't sew at home because sewing takes an enormous amount of space. Quilting does, not all sewing, but quilting does. And I just don't have that kind of space. So I tend to sew very small things. And I was able to make a quilt top that was, you know, table size. It was quite large in a day, um, which was fun and freeing. Great to have the space to do it and the time. Um, sometimes it's, Sometimes it's just energizing also to work in a different medium. I know a question that you posed to me when I texted you a photo of what I had made is you said, I think you should think about how a quilt is different than a painting, which was an annoying question because I think sometimes my interest is actually in how a quilt and a painting can actually be the same thing in some ways, which, rem which reminds me a little bit of that exhibit that we saw at that school I can't remember the name of it when we went on the New England art tour uh -huh, uh -huh. that was about mixing the idea of fiber or weaving and paint and different ways that people had found to mix textiles and paint. Um, and so even after class was over, there was a little bit more kind of learning in me because I was thinking about that question. And, and again, I think the, the thing that is compelling about questions is that there's not always a quick answer or an easy answer and some things you just mull over and put in your brain, your, your mental Rolodex for later and have an aha moment of some kind. Um, well, let me know fun. when you have your aha moment. Oh, I will yeah. say it's that to me, uh, you, you sent me a photo of it and then you said, it doesn't feel like me. So maybe one way for you to get into it is to ask yourself, why doesn't it feel like you? What are the elements of the current uh, metamorphosis of this quilt that, does, that don't feel right for you? And then from there, you can analyze what, what it is that you want to do. And uh, maybe it's okay that some of these alien elements have crept in. Yeah, I think uh, you made a good point, which is you said a lot of times the... Wait, wait, say that again. I missed it. Your face looks like a butt. Uh, no, you. so you made a good point, which is a lot of my... Most of my previous quilts have told stories. Right. In the same way that I think most of my paintings tell stories. But this was a very abstract quilt and yet not clean in terms of hey it's flying geese and triangles or hey it's blocks and whatever it was more miscellaneous and has a if you didn't like it you'd say it's a mess if you did like it you say it's a sophisticated abstract quilt see how art goes both ways right you can do one <laughs> or the other um so I think it's me, not unlike things I struggle with in my painting, as I've been trying to create more abstract paintings, which is, again, the question of how do I hit visually interesting, 
along or arresting along with emotionally provocative along with intellectually stimulating in my paintings i've been asking that question a lot when i don't have a story when i have an abstract you know something um and i think i'm asking that same question with the quilt too which is how am i hitting those triangles now of course kandinsky does it beautifully in his abstracts uh so i just need to be a little bit more like kandinsky i guess is the answer there you go aha i figured it out (laughs) i do think down the road you'll be working on this some more because i think you have a an urge to to more julieize it and I wonder if that's where now the intellectual part is going to come in a little bit. Well, let's talk about Julia's too. Yeah. Because so I made the other quilting project, which you alluded to that I worked on is, so my guild is having a show and part of what they're doing is they're trying to get a hundred ruby red blocks for the show. And they have a hundred people who've signed up to do one and it's a donation to the guild because they're going to sell them all for like 45 bucks or something like that. Um, so what's a ruby red block? Oh, mom, you ask the best questions. Everybody always says, you know how to ask just the right question. And clearly you just did. So, so a ruby red block is a block that's made with red and white fabric only. So I decided to try out making a sort of cute sort of kids roomy kind of little quilted owl block i thought it would be easy and it would be attractive and it would be something that you know when people said which one of the hundred is yours i could just say the owl easy you better hope nobody else does an owl okay then i would say the awesome owl uh so then so i made one with just commercial fabrics and after it was all cut out i looked at it and first i realized that i had been using Pardon me, some red fabric that had some gold in it. Gold is not white and apparently not does not count as red or white. So I was like, well, I need to fix that. So then I was looking through my stash and I didn't have enough uh, red and white fabric. And so I thought I could go buy stuff. And then I thought, are you kidding me? I'm a painter. I'm going to just go paint some fabric. So I painted a bunch of fabric and I made a second owl, exactly the same design, but just with my personal painted fabric. And I posted the two pictures side by side on Facebook and I said, which one do you like? And sort of universally across the board, people said the the painted fabric one was just so jewelly. And I was thinking a lot about that, about how your personal, you know, Of course, I make fabric that looks like me. Like the easiest way to make anything look like me is to paint fabric or paint paper or whatever it is. And it's the same thing I know I've mentioned before about when Nat and I worked on this project together and she was like, it's cheating that you always have this, you know, deli paper because it's just everything looks like you immediately. And I thought, yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, So and then I had brought some of the leftover painted fabric, just like a little scrap of it to this class. And I am not kidding you. I have never had so many people come by the table and say, where did you get that fabric? And I kept saying, oh, I just painted it. And they were like, what? How do you paint it? And I was like, uh, you take a paintbrush and you paint it. And it's funny because it's a question I get all the time. Um, and, uh, I think it's like anything else when you do it instinctively and naturally, it just seems like nothing to you. And I kept, I couldn't understand why people like this fabric. Cause I, I'm going to describe it now to you and you are going to be like, why do people like that? Cause that's what I was like. So basically, oh, you know what? Maybe in the post for this podcast, I'll share some photos of the quilt and maybe that fabric in it and some photos from class and stuff so you can see it. Um, 
But what I was going to say is, so I, it is a piece of muslin that I painted white and maybe a little bit of red in there. So it was red and white. And then I used a fat, flat paintbrush and I painted dashed lines on it. That's literally all it is. It is not a masterpiece. If somebody asked me to design a fabric line, which if you're a person who has that power, please ask me. But if somebody asked me to design a fabric line, that would never occur to me to be a design that I would include. And people went gaga for it. So that was a fascinating thing. And what I decided in the end is that by incorporating some of that personal fabric into this quilt, it made it more personal and did Juliaize it a little. So another fabric that I included in it, besides some painted fabric of mine, is I included some fabric that I had made at Spoonflower, which was a paper collage of mine that I had turned into a pattern. So that was fun. And so and so when you look at the quilt, I don't know if anybody else will know, but I can see the Julie bits of it because it's my fabric, either hand-painted or spoon-flowered. Aren't you going to give a little talk at one of your Quilt Guild meetings about this? I am this? teaching a free, like, three-hour uh, painting on fabric. It's stamping and stenciling on fabric class um, for my Quilt Guild, for Guild members. Um, which I think will be a lot of fun. And the good news is doing it on fabric is almost the same as doing it on paper. There are some very small differences, which makes it really easy. But I think people have fun. A lot of people have not played with stamps and stencils, so I think they'll enjoy it. When we were at the Craft and Hobby uh, Association meeting, you had a piece exhibited in the Art Foamies booth, mm -hmm. which was fabric that you had created by stamping art foamies on it and then you had I guess sewn outlines around parts of the design mm -hmm. and I remember people coming in and not understanding that you had created this fabric using the foamies they just didn't understand what is this yeah it's an interesting thing people immediately understand if you put a stamp on paper that you've somehow have stamped the paper but they don't understand when they see it on fabric that you stamped the fabric I don't know what that disconnect is there's probably a scientific reason why people have a disconnect about it but you can show people paper and a stamp and they'll go oh you stamped that paper but you show people a piece of fabric in the stamp and they go did you make the stamp from the fabric design? It's fascinating. Hmm. Anyway, we titled this whole podcast about learning, and I just want to say the following, which is um, Julie Loves Learning made sense because we were when we were looking at the last two weeks, we started talking about how many different sort of learning opportunities I've had. Two different classes, the lecture, the curatorial tour, which seems like a lot. You know, that's four things in two weeks. That's a lot. It's actually less than two weeks. Um, but I think more than anything, learning can be done in so many ways if you're curious about art. You know, there's online classes, there's free YouTube videos, there's um, books if you're a learner who learns that way. There are museums to go to. There are galleries if you don't have museums. There are uh, all sorts of, you know, opportunities for you to be an experiential learner and make things. Obviously, there are classes. There, there are all kinds of things. And I, I think that the way that we become old is by stopping learning. And I think that's true in all aspects of life, not just art. But 
the the reason that people seem old is because they're to me and again this is personal is because they're no longer curious about the world they're no longer interested in consuming new information and gaining new skills in any of those things and so i hope that or my plan my peter pan plan to never grow up is that as long as i am learning as long as i am curious as long as i am trying new uncomfortable things as long as i'm thinking and exploring and don't feel that i know everything as long as i am um excited about that process of getting filled up with ideas i think that i will always be young so what you're telling me is in order for me to stay young i need to update my phone to the latest operating <laughs> system and not resist well you need to do that just for the cool new emojis but i have to say it is annoying update and i did resist for a long time but i'm learning it uh there are two classes you've actually signed up for in your continued quest to stay young. Yeah. So I signed up for a class at the Museum of Fine Arts, which I am excited about. So it's a painting class. And somebody didn't unplug her phone, and it is now going off. So let me unplug it right this second. I'm so glad that we all get to be here for my phone ringing. So sometimes learning takes repetition yes sometimes learning does take repetition okay so the class that i'm really really excited about is i think it's called acrylic acrylic expressionism i believe is the name of it and so it's it's a it's a day class so it's like 10 o'clock until maybe four or something like that every single uh i can't remember what day of the week it is is that terrible i hope i show up at the museum at the right time um but maybe mondays yeah so basically it involves some gallery time some talking time some working time um and it's i think it's eight weeks long i am of course because of travel issues going to miss a couple classes which i'm sorry about but say la vie but i'm ex i'm excited to have the opportunity to meet some other artists be inspired by them um spend a day doing some art making that is just for fun just for me just for learning um have a space to really fail in one of the things that has happened to me as my career in the craft industry has advanced is that if i go to classes in the craft industry meaning at stores that i potentially could teach at or at locations where there are people who do the kind of stuff I do, I, I often will run into one or several students who, this just sounds terrible, but know who I am. And that sometimes makes a very tough learning experience or a learning environment for me because in those cases, I often feel that there is an expectation that I am going to be good at whatever it is that we do. And in fact, in some instances, it has even been expressed to me, oh, well, you'll have no problem with this. Oh, you're gonna be awesome with this. Oh, I can't wait to see what you do and copy it or whatever. And I know all of that is meant to be flattering and I appreciate it, but I take it as somewhat intimidating because class is a time for you to fail. It is time for you to try stuff that you are not good at, that you do not feel comfortable with, that you stink at and to fall flat on your face. And that is very difficult to do unless you have no ego in front of people who expect you to be good. 
Now, maybe it would be a great life lesson for everyone if I did it in front of those people, but it, I, I find it makes me very tight and nervous. And instead of going on the path of stuff that I don't know will work, I find myself heading towards the comfort of things I know will work so that I don't look like a schmuck, so to speak. Um, so the nice thing about- Then you get less out of the and class. And I get less out of the class because of that. So the nice thing about taking class at the museum is no one knows me. No one could care. No one cares less about me. I am not interesting to them. I'm just some faceless lady. And that is awesome. I love the anonymity, and I, it's uh, it feels good to fail. Some people have that same thing about sketching or painting in public, so that they don't want to take a sketchbook like the guy mm. you mentioned from the Winslow Homer lecture because they feel that people watching put pressure on them to somehow be good instead of to be able to just ignore them and use the experience. I 100% get that. I have absolutely felt that. And the other thing is people come right over to you when you're sketching in their set and they say, oh, I want to see what you're doing. But here's the thing that I've learned over time after being humiliated by the fact that I'm drawing something and it looks ugly is, so there's two stories I want to tell. So one is um, every time I have apologetically said to someone, and you should never do this, by the way. I'm guilty of it myself, but do what I say, but not what I do. You should never say to somebody, oh, it's really crappy, uh, or it's not that great. I'm just a beginner, or whatever. Anytime I've said something like that, the person has never said, yeah, it totally sucks. Oh, that's really ugly. No. Every single time the person has said, it's a lot better than I could do, or looks great to me, or some other variation of it. Nobody who is interested enough to look at your art is going to say, P.S., you suck. Like, they're just not. They're just not. Keep your day job. Yeah. So that has helped me get over it. And then the second thing is, so when I went to the New York uh, Urban Sketchers, there were so many people there who were incredibly talented and making drawings that were beyond me. Like, I don't know how they do it. Just fantastic. And in a style that, you know, I wish I could have so architectural, so perfect. So, pardon me. So like perspective of like, I don't know, a God, like just divine, everything perfect. And then there's this point in the day where we pass around our sketchbooks and everybody looks at them. And I thought, no, no, no. I must leave before this public humiliation <laughs> happens of passing the sketchbook. But the leader of the group said, oh, Julie, I can't wait to see our sketchbooks. I'm really excited. And I realized that I could not sneak out at that time. So I handed over my moleskin and I thought, everybody's going to give me that nice smile of congratulations. Oh, good job. Good job, four-year-old. Uh, that's a tree and that's a person. I can tell the difference, right? And instead, what I found is people asking me questions. Oh, wow. Where did you find this? What is that? How did you do this? Because what I realized is what I create, uh, I have in my sketchbook, I have stamping. I have lettering. I doodle with, uh, you know, all sorts of crafty pens that have glitter or that are fluorescent. I I uh, journal, I do all sorts of stuff that a lot of traditional sketch artists don't. And so instead of feeling like a pariah of the least talented human being on earth, 
what I found is they were focused and interested in not on the quality of my drawing. Would I, you know, was I ready to be an architectural digest as a realistic, you know, photorealistic portrait of this scene we had just seen? They were interested in all the little things that I added as an artist that I think makes my work me. And so that gave me a lot of confidence, A, to be me and to not want to be them with their perfect drawings and to not want to be something that I'm not and to embrace all the crafty sides of me. You know, I think sometimes people are like, well, are you an artist or a crafter? Are you this or are you that? Or I would never call you a crafter. And I keep thinking, well, I am a crafter. You know, I'm also an artist. I'm both of them at the same time. And so I think it's important when you're making art in front of people to remember that most people want to be nice. The same is true, and I know this is true, that if I'm in class with people who know who I am and expect me to good, if I stink at it, they're not going to suddenly be like, hey, Julie Faye fanballs are sucks. They're going to be like, oh, wow, Julie's just like me. She struggles with stuff too, and it'll be a wonderful moment for all of us. I just don't know if my ego can take that. But I, I do still go to class in those situations. It's just more difficult for me. It's less freeing. You know, oh, is that a dog with five legs or is that the tail? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I'm glad you can identify it was a dog. It's a cow. <laughs> the uh, other thing you're going to do if for learning, which is a different kind of class, is you've signed up for a webinar. I have. I signed up today. So I belong to the Modern Quilt Guild um, and the modern I belong to my local Boston Modern Quilt Guild. You can, when you join your local offshoot of the guild, you actually join the national, and I think it's actually international modern quilt guild as well. And so they have monthly webinars. They also send out a newsletter with block of the month and all kinds of, again, this is another learning opportunity. Guilds are a great place for learning and webinars are a great thing. So what is a webinar? Well, mom, you and I are asking such good questions today. Um, so a webinar is basically, it's an online live experience. I think of it like a Facebook live, but fancier. Meaning there's a person on camera, all the audience is there. You can usually type in questions. Um, it's usually done through some more sophisticated software than like say a Facebook live, because usually it's archived the video so you can watch it later. And they'll teach you some sort of skill um, they'll often play video within the live video, like if there's a technique that requires a little more concentration or something like that. And then you can ask questions and they'll respond to them. But they're, I think, incredibly useful. So I just signed up based actually on this improvisational piecing. It was sort of serendipity that the Modern Quilt Guild sent something out that was also about improvisational piecing. And it was actually about creating cohesion in improvisational pieces. I think improvisational quilting is a hot thing right now. Um, so creating cohesion, which I thought would be a useful skill across anything. Now, the webinar is set up to be best for internationals. So it's on at like 10 in the morning in Paris and eight in the evening in Australia, which means it's like four in the morning for me. But I signed up because I figured that I will, that way I'll get the video later. And even if I am not up at four in the morning, I can watch it later. Cause even if I don't get to ask a question, you can actually submit questions ahead of time. And so I thought I could submit some questions if I wanted, or I could just watch it and see, but another great learning uh, activity. And I get to be in my jammies at home, you know, taking notes and, and uh, taking no prisoners. You have actually taught webinars as well. I, I have taught webinars. I, you know, I, I like, you know, the same reason you like being the Valentine's Day mailman, because you think of the joy that you bring to everyone. 
Um, teaching is a and I get to be the boss of the Valentine. <laughs> get to be the boss of the Valentines. Uh, I think I have the same thing with teaching, which is. I like, I mean, why do I blog five days a week? Why do I share on Instagram? Why do I do any of that stuff? I mean, none of it started out as a sort of career choice. All of it started out as a, I want to share things. I like sharing things. I love it when I hear from people that they're excited, that I've touched their lives, that they've, I mean, some of the best memories that I have are of talking to people in person in class or uh, getting an email from somebody who tells me, you know, they had cancer and during some of the darkest times of whatever, you know, watching my videos was a ray of light and made them feel better. And they felt like we went through it together. And it was a complete stranger. But, you know, what an amazing gift to give me telling me that story. I mean, how wonderful. Uh, I've had people tell me I've helped them with their sobriety through divorces, with the death of a child. I mean, and none of that is because I'm trying to pretend to be like a grief counselor or do anything emotional, but it's because I think what I try always, whether it's a free tutorial or a paid tutorial or an in-person class or an online thing or blog post or whatever, or this podcast is I try to convey something that I believe wholeheartedly in, which is the joy of making stuff. I mean, to put it, really what I really believe is in the joy of making shit, but you know, we'll try to keep it clean here. But yeah, the joy of making stuff, which is really about when you make things, you go into a Zen meditation place. I've never met anybody who did any kind of creative thing and didn't at some point mention what, how meditative it is. I mean, look at the coloring book craze that we have right now. There is something wonderful about it. And then on top of that, when you add in the intellectual component and all that other stuff, it just makes it so interesting. I know we hate that word. It makes it so fascinating, so compelling, so exciting, so wunderbar. It makes it something that I know I want to be a part of every single day. And so I preach this thing about the joy of making. And I hope that that joy, that excitement, that happiness uh, comes through in everything that I do. So, um, yeah, I don't know where I was going with that, but that's just, that's my thought for the day. The joy of making I think stuff. that's a good place to end. Perfect. So I hope that you have the joy of making in you. And as always, you can find me, that was very New York, as always, you can find my dog, my daughter, <laughs> and some water. Um, at balzerdesigns.typepad.com. Do leave us your comments or questions at balzerdesigns.com backslash arting. We'd love to hear from you. And if you tweet about the show, please use the hashtag pound arting podcast. That's A-R-T-I-N-G-P-O-D-C-A-S-T. And thanks so much for listening. We'll see you the next time on the Adventures in Arting podcast. <laughs>